consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strive or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you will bow your heads again with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this gift you've given us in your word. The fact that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in this way is something we can never take for granted. God, we thank you so much for what we have read from your word and what we are going to talk about tonight. May you reveal the truths of it to us. May your Holy Spirit be speaking through your word so that we can understand more not only of what you've done for us, but what you've called us to live out in our lives now. God, I thank you so much for all the many people here who serve faithfully, who as a church seek to honor and glorify you, Lord. We ask that tonight that's all that is done. We seek to praise you, to worship you, to honor and glorify you in all that we do. And it's in your precious son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So many of you know the term humble beginnings. We've read that at the beginning of books, autobiographies, maybe seen it in the beginning of a movie, the phrase humble beginnings. I don't need to explain to you what that means, but it's this description of someone who comes from a lowly or poor beginning of life. Someone who maybe experienced a sort of rags to riches story. Everyone loves to hear these inspiring stories of people overcoming the odds and becoming great by the end of their lives, by the end of their stories. The ever-present desire to gain more and do more drives people to do great things most of the time. However, most people who have a story that begins with humble beginnings say something like, I'm so grateful for that time when I had nothing because it made me the person I am today. Whether you believe it when someone says that or not, there is a bit of truth in that way of thinking. In particular, there's a bit of truth in there for the Christian to learn from. Having nothing does fuel our desire to have something. Humble beginnings. When we finally come to this point of knowing that in and of ourselves we are nothing and that Christ is everything, we can begin our story. He brings dead things to life. And I must admit I was very impacted by a uh, book of an old theologian, an old pastor, Andrew Murray, and he wrote a book entitled Humility. And so much of this book is just a biblical theology of what does the word humility mean? What does it mean throughout Scripture? How do all of the characters of the Bible replicate this word humility in their lives? 
It convicted me. And I think that it has convicted me because I struggle so much with the idea of humility. You see, I did grow up in this church. And as a kid, I was not a wild and rambunctious youngin. youngin. That was Tony. But instead, I wanted to be the one who memorized all of my Awana verses growing up. I wanted to be the one who always had his Sunday best on. I remember um, several people growing up here would come up to me and I would have my clothes on and I would wear a suit every once in a while, put a tie on or something, think I was really, really fashionable. And they would say, boy, you look sharp. And I thought, yeah, I do. You know what? I really am something. I would compete with other kids who were really smart. And I thought, I can memorize more verses than them. I can become smarter than them. And that carried on in my life to other areas. I, uh, I played a lot of basketball in high school. Um, and I was convinced I had to look this certain part to impress people. There was one time we were playing a game, and it was getting kind of down to the end, and it was a close game, which didn't happen for us a lot. But it was a close game. And the ball went out of bounds, and the ref called it out on the other team. But I knew I was the last one to touch it. So being the good Christian young man that I am, I went up to the ref and, and made sure he could see that that was out on me. I was the one that touched it last. And he was a little bit shocked, but he changed the call. And he gave the ball to the other team. And I thought, man, I'm such a good person for doing that. And I thought that this made me a good Christian. It was not about Christ. It was about me. See, that's pride. That's arrogance. That is not the message we receive from God. That is not the gospel. However, I think we all fall into this trap sometimes of worrying about what our image to others may be instead of pointing to the one who we are trying to replicate, and that is Christ himself. In this chapter, we see Paul give a blueprint of what it means to truly be a humble person. He is telling this church at Philippi, you should have this among you. You should look exactly like this. And I think that we can see humility play out in a several areas of our lives. And tonight, I want us to touch on just a few. First, I would like for us to talk about our community and how we can be humble in our community. Then, we will see how Paul has given us instructions for our conduct amongst that community. How can we treat each other? How should we look at each other so that we can exemplify humility in our lives. But most importantly, Paul is drawing attention not to this characteristic you can have to become impressive. He is saying, I just want you to look exactly like Christ. That's what you need to have in pursuing a life characterized by humility. And so tonight, we will have three C's, if you will, alliteration here. We will have community, we will have conduct, but ultimately we always want to end with Christ. Everything points back to him. So the first one, community. How does our lives change by hearing that Paul is talking to a community of believers? How does that impact us and how we interact with each other? Well, this first phrase that we find in the beginning of verse 1 is very important for the rest of the chapter. It says... If there be therefore 
any consolation in Christ? Now, this is a rhetorical question. In other words, he's not really meaning to ask, is there any consolation in Christ? No, he knows the answer. There is consolation in Christ. The rest of the verse say, if there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies. Paul knows the answer to that question. Of course there is. Of course all these things are true. But he's hearkening back to what he had just wrote to the Philippian church in the first chapter. If we go back to chapter 1 and read verse 27, it says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In the previous chapter, Paul had explained how he was willing to die. In fact, he preferred to die and to be present with Christ. But he knew if he stayed, if he was to live, he would be in service to God. And that he would encourage the church, that he would be used in many ways. So he's kind of in this straight betwixt two things. He wishes he was here or there. He really wants to go be with Christ more than anything. But he wants the church at Philippi to know this message more than anything he says this is the most important thing if you don't hear anything else if you don't pay attention to this letter there is one thing i need you to understand you guys are united in one person you have one gospel and you must stay connected through that one gospel at the end of verse 27 there he says that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, whether I see you or not, whether we get to rejoice together ever again or not, stay strong together, united in Christ. That's the most important thing. This may be an obvious statement. We think, of course, the church is united in Christ. But what Paul is saying to the church is that this needs to be applied not only to their current situation, what, what unifies them in that moment, but for the rest of their life, the only thing that can be the determiner of if you're a Christian or not is your faith in Christ. Did he die? Was he resurrected? Is he really God? Those are the questions that mattered to Paul. Now, he did not say, plus the bit about circumcision, or plus the bit about the Sabbath day. No, the early church tried to make those distinctions, to say you have to be this or that, you have to follow this way or that way, you have to be of Apollos or Paul, you have to be of these certain doctrinal positions, or you're out. And Paul said, that's not what matters. He says, I am not focused on if you follow me, him, her or anyone else, what I want you to believe in more than anything is that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. Make him Lord and Savior of your life. That is the gospel. Paul says that's the most important thing. In 1 Corinthians 15, he will say that he delivers this as the first importance, the gospel. However, I think the bit about staying united over the main thing is still relevant today. 
I'm glad we don't have any divisions among our church today. I'm glad our American Christianity does not have different cliques and groups scattered throughout. We know that's a lie. We have so many divisions among us. We have so many things that we separate over. And yes, we want to be doctrinally sound. We want to be biblically accurate in how we worship, how we uh, live out our faith. But sometimes I fear we are too quick to say they're not with us. They're not a Christian. All because maybe they don't dress the way we dress. Maybe they don't have the same type of music we have. Let's even go a step further. Our name, this church, the denomination we're in is Baptist. We know there's different views about baptism, but guess what? Christ didn't say you're not saved if you're baptized in this way or that way. The most important detail is that we get Christ right. We cannot worry about the color of the carpet. We cannot worry about who's dunked and who's sprinkled. What matters most of all is who was washed in the blood of the Lamb. The message that Paul is giving church at Philippi applies to us. We do not divide over littler things. Not that they're not important and not that we aren't biblically accurate in them. But you can be a Christian and disagree with me on certain things. The thing we have to agree on is who Christ is and what he's done and being saved by his blood. So this creates community. These are the people we are united with. These are the people we believe in Christ together with. This is how we worship. Unified in Christ. Paul is saying this is the community of believers you have been called to. This is the place you have to serve. And I want you to know this truth more than anything else. But we have to ask the question, how does this play out then? If we're supposed to be humble, if we're supposed to be loving and united in our communities, what must we do? I bring your attention to verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through strive or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And learning that we are a part of a community of believers and need to be of the same humble mind, we then must ask ourselves, how do you do that? What actions bear the fruit of humility? Thankfully enough, Paul gives us these very specific commands that will flow from someone who is truly humble. He first says, let nothing be done through strive or vainglory. I've given you the example already. I was not following Christ because I was so captured by who he was. I was convinced I had to be something different myself to impress God, to impress others. I had to be good enough. I had to do something that looked good in order to be considered a Christian. That was for strive. And vainglory. It was about me and not he. In our relationships, if you love someone, 
you will throw yourself in front of something to save that person's life. You've had a, a child. As they run to the road, you would dive in front of a car to try to save their life. For your closest friends, you'll, you'll sacrifice time. You'll sacrifice money. You'll sacrifice so many things just to put them first. Because guess what? You've made a choice to act humbly in your relationship. You are putting someone else's needs before your own. And that is good. But there is a little bit of a gray area there sometimes. We're convinced, okay, I can kind of kill two birds with one stone. I can do the right thing, but I'm going to feel really good about myself for doing the right thing. No, that's not what Paul is saying. You do not care for others simply to make yourself feel good about yourself. That's not humility. That's not love. Because when we do it that way, what we say is, I love that person and I'll do some things for them, but I really don't like that guy back there. And I don't know if I want to put the time and effort into helping him. I'm just going to leave that one alone. We pick and choose which ways we want to show love to others. It's a very prideful way to look at things. But that's not the example we get from our Lord and Savior, is it? The people who beat him, the people who sin against him so often, the people who are wretched, he's chosen to love them. To pour out mercy and grace on them. Not because they earned it. Not because they were nice to him. But because he loved them regardless. The perfect example of humility. Paul continues. In lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourselves. If we're not careful here, we might misinterpret what it is saying. We might read it that we're supposed to just forget about yourselves. Or some people, believe it or not, even see this and think, okay, I guess I should just hate myself. I think back to the testimony of a friend. And then when we were talking about Christ and, and he was thinking about his faith, I was going through this book on humility and I said, man, because I'm not going to give his name away, what do you think the word humility means? And he says, well, I'm a very humble person, which I kind of laughed at. But he said, I'm, I'm a humble person. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, man, I know I'm really bad. I know I'm worth nothing. I don't even like myself. And that's what he thought humility meant. See, C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of oneself. It's just thinking of yourself a little bit less. And I like that. It's a very good description of who we are supposed to be in a humble way it's not that you are not worth anything to christ it's not that you should not care about your own life it's that you should not care only about yourself instead you look to your brother to your sister to the person across the street from you and you say how can i help them being humble is a reorientation of our minds instead of thinking what can i do to benefit me we say how can i benefit others that's true humility. That's how we live out our humbleness in this community of faith. Paul then continues to say, look not on your own things. This is a phrase that I think should be applied to, to modern American culture more than anything. 
Look not on your own things. Everyone in here, if you have a, a, a smartphone, raise your hand. A lot of people do. Now, is there two cameras on it or one? A lot of phones have two cameras now, one on the back, one on the front. What's the front camera called? The selfie camera. It's a camera that points back to yourself so you can look at you. So you can be included in the picture. If you use a selfie camera, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. However, we live in a culture where selfies are glorified. We have phrases like, do what makes you happy. Live your best life now. So many things that are basically just pretty ways of saying, you should be selfish. You should look out for number one. Want to talk about me, myself, and I. This is not the example Christ gave us. We don't look at this world through a mirror. We don't reflect back on everything and think, how does this benefit me? How can I see this as something good for me? Instead, we reach out. We go into this world. We see the other people hurting, needing help, seeking for the light in a dark place. And what we're supposed to do is say, here's the light. Here is what we have to offer. And it's nothing in me, but it is Christ himself. We're just reflections of his light. This world is not to be meant, is not meant to be seen through only a lens of a mirror. It's meant for you to go out to see the other people and to serve them. He continues then again in verse 4 by saying, But look also on the things of others. This is how you serve. This is how you love someone. What do they need? Do you need to mow the neighbor's yard? Do you need to go buy them food? Maybe you just need to go talk to them because guess what? They're lonely. Maybe they need prayer. There are so many simple little things we can do to show our love to others, to be the hands and feet of Christ, to reach out to this world that needs help and just do a simple act of kindness. They're around us every day. Too often, though, it doesn't coincide with what you want to do that day. It takes sacrifice. It takes work. But I don't think that work will ever match up to the work Christ has done. If it's such a struggle for you just to go and show kindness to your neighbor, maybe you've misunderstood the gospel. Because he gave up everything for you and for me. And we'll get more into that in just a few verses here. In fact, we are, as this final point we'll segue into, is the replication of the mind of Christ. All these instructions are really summed up in verse 5 here. Verse 5 of this chapter reads, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. How many of you would say, and you don't have to answer this with your hands raised, you can just metaphorically answer this, you can, you can do it uh, just, just in your own mind. 
How many of you would say, I want to have the mind of Christ? We all would. We would all love to, to be this perfect image of Christ, to show everyone that. But we have to be reminded that we don't. Reorient your mind for a second. Say, how can I be more like Jesus? I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm not saying anything you haven't heard before. How can you be more like Christ? Paul says, replicate the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. When I was taking a few classes a, year, a couple years ago, there was one illustration that really stuck out to me. And it was this story of an individual who went to a class, and, and what they had to do was, I think it was zoology, they were studying uh, animals. They were trying to learn more about these animals. So the teacher gave him a fish. He says, I want you to go home, write 30 observations about this fish, and then come back to me the next day and, and tell me. So the guy goes home. He starts to write down things. He, he, he sees the color of the fish. He sees where are the fins. He sees how many eyes does the fish have. He, he, he writes down details about the fish, and the next day he comes in, and he brings the paper in, and he says, here's 30 details about the fish. The teacher looks at him, takes the paper, reads it, says, good. Now go home and write down 30 more details about the fish. Bring them back tomorrow. So the guy's like, okay. He takes it home. He looks at the fish, and he's thinking, I, it's a fish. How am I going to figure out more details about this? He starts to write down. He says, okay, well, there's the scales. This is how they go. There's a little bit of a, a, a marking on its back. It likes to move in a certain motion. It has this favorite place in the tank it goes to. And he wrote down 30 more observations about the fish. And he thought, this has got to be the A I'm looking for. He brings back the assignment to the teacher. The teacher says, you have done so well. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that fish home with you. And for two weeks, I want you to stare at that fish and bring back 30 more observations that are new about this fish. He was frustrated. He thought, oh my goodness, how is this helping me? What benefit is this? Here's the lesson. The more you study something, the more you know about it. How much do you study Christ? How often are you looking into Scripture saying, let me know more? About who Jesus is. Let me study this just a little bit longer. You see, some of us may think at times, well, we got it all figured out. But we've only begun. Maybe it's not something new. Maybe we need to be reminded of something old. Maybe we can see it through a better lens now that we've went through some suffering. Maybe there's a new joy in our life that we want to praise him for. But I promise you, the more you look into Christ, the more you seek to replicate him in your life, to become like Jesus, you'll never have that end. And it will continue to grow, and you will learn and learn and learn. So Paul says, replicate the mind of Christ. How does this happen? Paul writes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6 says, who being in the form of God, 
thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What does it mean to replicate the mind of Christ? Paul gives that command in verse 5, and he explains what it looks like in verses 6 through 9. And we see this condescending list of things. How Christ humbles himself. So let's begin at the top. The first thing he lists is he was in the nature of God. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Later in that chapter, we learn that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Christ. Christ is the only begotten. Christ was there from the beginning. The Son of God is not someone who was born 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ was, but God the Son, the part of the Trinity, is eternal. He always has been, and he always will be. So he has the nature of God from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time. And he lives ruling and reigning with the Father. Above everything in creation. All this power, all of this divinity that he has. But Jesus Christ, having this ability, having this power, having this position, says, I'm willing to go below this. I'm willing to become something lesser while still maintaining the greater. The Word of God says that he was in the form of God, but he didn't count that as something he had to hold tightly. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Verse 7 says, But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. The king, the the one who ruled everything decides one day, for my glory, I will become the lesser. I'll become the servant. The one who rules everything becomes the one who serves. He leaves his throne above. He, he leaves this glory and he becomes a man like me and you. Fully God and fully man. Christ can feel the same pain we feel. He can be tempted the same way we can be tempted. The, the gospel tells us that he hungered, that he thirsted. Guess what? He even wept. What amazes me about the birth of Christ is that the God of all creation revealed himself to mankind in the form of a baby. 
all of power, all of creation, bows to him. And he comes to be something that I could hold in one hand. A baby. Wow, that's humility. But he doesn't just stop there. Paul says he did a little more than that. He wasn't just a servant. He wasn't just a human. But being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Now, being obedient is one thing. Christ was obedient to the Father. He always wanted to point back to the Father. I and my Father are one. He wanted everything he did to, to, to glorify the Father, to be pointing back that direction. But he says, it's not just that I'm obedient to the Father. Paul says he was obedient to the point of death. Willingly laying down his life for creation that had rejected him. That had sinned against him. That had committed high treason against the God of the universe. He says, I'm not just going to become one of them. I'm going to die as one of them. I'm going to experience all of the pain that goes into this crucifixion. I'm going to be bruised. I'm going to be whipped. I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be cursed. I'm going to be tried as a criminal. And if you believe that for one second, he didn't feel the pain, just go back to that scene as Christ is in the garden praying, and he says, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it be so. But it, it, it's not my will, but thine. He knew what was coming. He knew what he would experience. He knew how painful it would be. And still, he humbly surrenders to the command of the Father. Obedient to the point of death. The death of a cross. And here we are at the last sea of the night. Christ. Christ crucified. As he dies upon that cross. He could have at any moment stopped it. He could have at any moment destroyed everyone there. He could have came down from the cross. But rather than displaying all the power he had within him, he chose to restrain himself. Because it is the only way. The only way that my creation can be reunited with me. The only way that this world can come into the Father. The only way that I can have communion with them is that I lay myself down for their sins. And in that, Christ showed us the perfect, awesome, incredible example of what true humility looks like. He endured it all because he loved us. He has lowered himself lower than any of us would ever be willing to even touch. The God of all creation dying on the cross. 
This is the perfect example of humility. You and I are to follow after this. We are to replicate the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. You say, I don't want to die for the sins of all mankind. Well, good, you don't have to. However, your first steps to Christ are steps of humility. Anyone who knows the ABCs of Christianity, the Romans Road, any of the evangelistic tools you want to use to share the gospel, you know the first thing you have to do is confess that you're a sinner. That is an act of humility. Seeing yourself for who you truly are in light of who Christ truly is. You must humble yourself before God. And this affects every area of our life. Because when we read God's word, we submit to it. We humbly accept what he has written. We humbly serve him. We pursue him, not because we want to look good, not because we're trying to impress everyone at church, not because we want to be a good father or a good mother. The only reason we pursue him is because he is worthy and because of what he has already done for us. It is our reasonable service of worship. Humility is our exaltation. It is our only true hope. In Matthew 5, we have the Beatitudes. And a lot of them seems like contradicting statements, especially to the Jewish audience who first heard it. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. What? A lot of those can be reshaped to say, blessed are the humble. If you're mourning over your sin, it's an act of humility. If you do not look on yourself as the center of attention, that all this world revolves around you, that you have to serve only yourself, if you say, I put everything in front of me, especially Christ, and I will serve others as I go to him, that is humility. All throughout his life, he served others by healing them, by loving them, by talking to them. And ultimately, he gave his life for them. He's called me and you to live the same life. But hallelujah, praise the Lord, the crucifixion is not the end. If I can add just one more letter in closing, I want to talk about Christ's coronation. The exaltation of Jesus Christ. Because the chapter does not end there. This paragraph does not end. But in verse 9 it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In his humility, Christ is highly exalted. The Father exalts the Son and gives him this name, which is above every name. There will be no way to escape praising him, worshiping God. Whether you are in heaven, on this earth, or are in hell, you will bow before Christ. 
whether you like it or not. This name brings everyone to their knees. Everyone will confess with their mouth and speak out that Jesus Christ is Lord. And just as Jesus would want it, it's not because Jesus thinks it's only about him, but he says, this glorifies the Father too. The Godhead three in one, the Trinity, is glorified that one day everyone will confess that Christ is Lord. So the question this evening is what must you do to act humbly? What steps do you need to take in this direction to have the same mind as Christ? We'll walk backwards. We'll say, first off, I've spent a life in service to the church. I want to thank you for that from the bottom of my heart. Several of you here have a very important role in my upbringing, and I'm grateful for that. Don't quit. Continue to pursue after him. Don't be satisfied with the amount of Jesus you already got. Keep running after him. It'll never end. Maybe you're new to the faith. And you're wondering, what can I do next? Follow these commands we've just read. Say, I don't know how to get into the weeds and, and, and all of these specific specifications, all of these specific details. I don't know how to follow all these rules. Don't worry about the rules right now. Follow Christ. His Holy Spirit will guide you. He'll teach you how to love others. He said the greatest commandment can be summed up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Another passage says your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It is that simple. Follow Christ. I'm not saying this is a magic pill that fixes everything. I can't just give you these words and they mean something. Because guess what? I must humbly accept I'm just a man. It's only his word that can do this. It's only his saving power that saved you. It's only his spirit that can guide you into a life more abundant. Which brings us back to the person who has never been humble. But you say, I've been a good person in my life. I've given to others. I've served to others. But I never attributed all of this work, all of this action to anything other than myself. May I say, good works won't get you into heaven. Good intentions will not save you. Good old country boys and girls do not get into heaven on their own. Unless you call upon the name of Jesus Christ and you make him your Savior and your Lord. And in humility you say, I am nothing, God, and you are everything. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. One theologian says it's a simple that's just falling down to say, I'm nothing. I can't do it, but you can. If we can sum up the word humility in one sentence, it will be to see ourselves honestly in light of who Christ is and to love others as he does.
This is what God's word says. This is the truth that affects our lives in so many ways. The question is, how will you live it out now? Do you have steps of humility you need to take? Do you have areas in your life where you're not serving Christ, you're serving self? He is all. He's everything. Let him have his place. If you bow your heads and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage that, that tells us the truth about who we are and who you are. We are sinners who are prone to think of our own needs first. We would rather make things easier on ourselves. We would rather find gain, whether it's financially or whether it's just by uh, respect or, or whatever it may be. We want to seek to make ourselves better, to make ourselves greater. But that's not to replicate your mind. That's not to pursue holiness the way you've called us to. Lord, you've called us to give up of self. In Christ, we have this perfect example of what someone who loves others looks like. Someone who doesn't consider their own gain, but instead recklessly abandons everything. Just to save sinners. No wonder the world thinks this gospel is foolish because it's hard to understand why a God like that would love someone like me. But in my greatest sins, God, you have saved me. You've been the propitiation. You've been the substitution. You have redeemed me. And I couldn't do anything. So I thank you for that salvation. And God, I ask that you would pour upon the person here who doesn't know you tonight the overwhelming weight of pride. That they would know how horrible it is. They, that they would see that it leads to nothing but destruction. Maybe these temporary pleasures they have in this life suffice for now, but they won't forever. There is only one God forever. There is only one truth that we can count on, and that is you, Christ. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son. And we thank you that he has given up himself for us. We just ask now that you would help us to to apply your word to our lives in the right way, in the correct way. As we leave this place, God, help us to have opportunities to be humble. And Lord, we know that in this life, we will never fully surrender to humility. But we will move towards it. We may not reach perfection in this life, but we're going to go in the direction that points to the cross. I would ask now that you would help us as we go home to be safe on our ways. That you would bring us all back here at the next point in time. And that you would be glorified in our lives. For you are all. And you always will be. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.